0: This is chapter 154 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we talk about the dearth of working class characters in literature with journalist and debut novelist Connie Schultz. Plus, this week's summer read pick packs a final twist you won't see coming. Tulitzer Prize-winning journalist Connie Schultz has always championed the underdog and underrepresented in her columns. In her debut novel, The Daughters of Erie Town, she chronicles the hopes and dreams and disappointments of four generations of women trying to survive and better their lives in a fictional working-class town in Ohio. I started off our interview by asking her why she wrote the story that she did.
1: Well, for a number of reasons. The primary driving force behind it, at least initially, was because um, I believe my editor at Random House, Kate Medina, when she took me to launch back in 2007, right before my second nonfiction book came out, and said the working class is really underrepresented in modern literature. I, I agree with that. And coming from the working class, as I do, um, there were so few stories I could read, so few novels, and I've read fiction ever since I could read fiction, um, that had people like me in them, people like the people I come from. Um and then there's also just the trajectory of women's lives in it and even though I didn't initially set out to do this, so much of the response I'm understanding that it really is also about the generations of women before us and and I'm a boomer, so I'm the age of Sam, one of the main characters, but she comes in much later after being initially at the beginning of the book. Uh, what they went through th- this is the other story of the feminist movement in some ways to me. It wasn't in the coast, it wasn't in New York. Um, It was in the middle of the country where women were trying to find their way and trying to find their voices in different ways without the support uh, of often even many of their own female friends, but knowing there was something more to them than the low expectations of people around them.
0: You have very strong ties to Ohio. How much is inspired by your experiences growing up and, and the people that you know?
1: Erie Town is is another version of Ashtabula, Ohio, where I grew up, but my editor had great advice on that. Don't call it a real town, because everybody will tell you what you got wrong. (laughs) So I made it Erie Town. It's still a working class town. It's still on the shore of Lake Erie, but I could make it whatever I want. But the people in it, while they're all fictional, they certainly carry um, the hopes and dreams of people I knew, and the disappointments often, too. And the two main characters, Ellie and Brick McGinty, do hold the professions of my parents, My mother was a nurse's aide and uh, my father was a utility worker. And part of the reason for that was simply I knew those professions best in terms of the working class jobs that we can hold over time. And it has struck me that if my parents were alive and working age today, they would both be considered essential workers. So as it turns out, this novel is also populated with people who ha- who would have had to go to work right now if it were set in this time.
0: It also struck me, too, that, you know, what plays out in the town regarding politics and race relations, it isn't a whole lot unlike what parts of the country or the country as a whole is experiencing right now.
1: I think about that so much because that was my experience um, Growing up in a small town, my father struggled with race all of his life. And I wrote a piece about that for the Atlantic a few years ago, because I was tired of hearing this false narrative that if you grow up in the white working class, you grow up to be racist. Um, Because I, I knew from personal experience that that's not necessarily true. I know that our roots are our beginnings, but they're not our excuses. And I also know that the working class isn't just white, which I tried to certainly make clear in that book. And in that way, I had something in common with the character Sam in that all of my elementary classrooms, um, half of my students, my fellow classmates were black. And when you grow up knowing that your friends don't have to look like you to be like you, it really does inform the trajectory of your life and certainly of your beliefs. So I wrote all this before Trump happened, except for the very you know, last bit of revising. And and yet here we are now um, in a time that the arguments are much the same. The racism looks very much the same. The progress is different. I'm encouraged by the progress we're making, but I had no idea when I was writing this book that it would become such a uh, a moment of clarity for my own thinking in terms of how far we haven't come in some ways. Um, And, but I also want to make it clear that it's not just the working class that has an issue with race, which we are also seeing play out. But in this book, of course, that is the issue.
0: You know, the decades over which the book unfolds is also a time I think a lot of people look back nostalgically on and think, oh, that Mm -hmm. was things were so much simpler. But you also show that even if it were the case, if things were a little bit simpler, it doesn't mean it was easier.
1: Well, no, it was not easy for women ever. It was not easy for black Americans ever. There's a scene in the book early on where a a kind woman, a black woman working at the Greyhound bus station helps a young white girl, but she knows there's only so far she can drive into the community where she's trying to drop her off to find Italian relatives. That that is exactly what it was like when I was growing up in small-town America. There were neighborhoods where black um, residents knew they they shouldn't go for fear of their safety. Um, That, too, is part of the 50s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. And I think sometimes we tend to want to talk about our history in terms of the the things we treasure now, the things, the progress we think we've made. Um, But then we also want to look back on what we call the simpler times because we didn't have technology, which meant we didn't have a chance for as many voices to rise. I always remind people of that, that the Internet has made it possible. I mean, look what happened with what is happening with the Black Lives Matter Movement. So much of it has uh, begun or grown through the ability to communicate on social media. So while they didn't have that in the '50s and '60s, and that made it easier, it's really made me comprehend how hard it was for John Lewis and Martin Luther King and all the other leaders um, and Rosa Parks, for example, how had to get the message out. There was there were no cell phones. There was no technology that way. There was nothing you could post and share and be here at a certain time. So I think only. People who wish that all white people were still in charge, white males, get particularly romantic about the 50s and the 60s.
0: I read a review that makes the argument that the town itself is the novel's chief protagonist. Do you agree?
1: Well, the working title for my novel, the entire time I was working on it, was just Eerie Town. But my editor made a convincing argument that as it unfolded, it was really about the women in it, most of all. But it is about a particular part of the country. But it can be anywhere in the country so it, when you have a small cloistered town that is slow to ch- to adapt to change. But change is being forced upon it anyway. So in that way, I would agree with that.
0: So if you if you were to go visit Erie Town today, what do you think would greet you? Has the town changed?
1: I think I'd be encouraged by its young people and the older residents who really were trying, who stayed and tried to make change. You know, the challenge for this is that... And we see this all over the country, and we certainly see it here in Ohio. The, the bright, ambitious young people tend to think they have to leave. And I must be very clear on this. I left Ashtabula, but I did end up staying in Ohio. But for me, Cleveland was the place to land. So what I would know, though, at its core is what I know, have known as a columnist for almost 20 years. Most people in this country are good. They would like to do the right thing, but they don't believe they have any ability to have any influence in the world and that nobody wants to hear what they have to say. And so the ugly part, the louder parts are the ones we hear the most from. And this has been my experience as a columnist. So I, I suppose in this way, I, my, my belief in the ability for humans to grow and to change and to evolve is bottomless. I'm just never going to stop having faith in people.
0: Isn't it kind of ironic that every generation feels it's up to the younger people, and yet every younger generation feels their voice is is not able to be heard?
1: Sure. I mean, I certainly I'm 62. Uh, coming out with my first novel. And um, I remember feeling that way because because I came of age in the 70s. But the thing I... I think about more often now, and I say this a lot when, I do, when I'm in public arenas. when I'm before the coronavirus, when we were all giving these speeches still. I think it's important. I say this to women of my generation and certainly to boomers in general. We don't have to fade away. We don't have to step aside, but we need to make room. And we do need, you know, I, one of the most rewarding parts of my existence right now is to be a professional in residence at the journalism school of my alma mater, Kent State, because I'm surrounded by young people. And these are young people, many of them first in their family to go to college, just as I was. Virtually all of them have to work their way through school. And there's just so much to them. And, I, and they give me hope because despite all the hardships, they have these dreams that they want to pursue, which is so much at the heart of the Daughters of Erie Town, right? The working class people have hopes and dreams, too. And they have big aspirations for their children. The difference is when the big problems come and they have no money to fix them then everything falls apart. And when I'm around these young people, we're all, you know, one of the things you're trying to do all the time is to brainstorm when the hard moments happen for them in their lives or those lives of their families. How do we keep them from um, from their lives exploding? How do we help them stay on course? And it's such rewarding work, but the thing is it's rewarding because of the, the company I keep. They're wonderful.
0: Is that really what you want readers to take away, to, to hold on to those hopes and to dreams and to know that that's not, Something that's based on class. Everybody has that.
1: Yeah, I think that would be certainly one of them. Sam has a moment in the book, Samantha, that I had when I first went to Kent State. Uh, Where I grew up, our county lost 26 boys in the Vietnam War. Countless others served, and so many of them came back forever altered, and often not in very good ways. It was just a hard, hard war. Until I went to Kent State, I I didn't know that there were people who didn't know someone who had served in the war. It was when I first became really aware of class. There were families who wouldn't let their kids play with me or have me stay overnight because my dad was a, you know, he worked in a plant. My mom was a nurse's aide. But it never really drove it home that way. And I think about what an editor said once to me in in a voice of tremendous frustration with my columns. And he said, Connie, you are not the working class. You are an intellectual. I was so stunned by that. And I said to them, well, if I'm an intellectual, I'm an intellectual from the working class. We have smart people, too. The difference is most of them don't get the opportunity that I've gotten to go to college. It changed my life. Have you
0: heard from people who have read the book who really the story really resonates with them?
1: Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's different groups. It's been so rewarding, for example, to hear from younger women who tell me, some of them who've interviewed me, who tell me they never considered what their mothers and their grandmothers may have gone through to get them where they are now. And that, and that was, I didn't intend for that. It's just been wonderful. I suppose the most some of the most rewarding are two groups, women who share their stories of their lives. I, I was worried, as a columnist, I'm used to people reaching out and sharing something about their own lives in response to something I've written. I had thought I would not get that chance with this. I, I was wrong about that. I'm hearing from so many women so many stories. And that is incredibly rewarding. Also, so many readers with working class roots. And, you know, if they think you didn't get it right, that's a failure. That, then I failed. And, and I'm also hearing from union, you know, current union members, current hourly wage earners who read because, of course, I've always known this. They read books, too. <laughs> we always did. We've always We've always been readers also, not everyone. I mean, I never romanticize the working class. I just don't want them to be oafs in the book, that, like so many books I've read, or just props for the storyline, and they all look stupid or, or just kind of sad and unfortunate, but you know, nothing going on for them. Their lives are rich, so many of them too, and it's so rewarding to hear from them.
0: So now that you have this debut novel under your belt, and you've written a few nonfiction books as well. Are you going to write more fiction?
1: I am, uh, in part because I have an agent and editor who every time they sign off from a call say, I certainly hope you're writing. <laughs> <laughs> <But> <laughs> I am writing another novel. It is not a sequel to this, but it, I think it may take place in Erietown. I mean, Erietown is 26,000 people. There are plenty of other neighborhoods where things can be going on. And right now I'm looking at a bookstore there. So we'll see how that plays out. But um, yes, I've made this leap. I was excited to debut on the New York Times bestseller list, which really helps you think. Okay, maybe you ought to do this. Maybe you ought to give it another go. Um, I'm still a columnist. I'm still straddling those two worlds, but I'm used to straddling two worlds. I'm a working class kid who got to go to college. You never stop straddling two worlds after that.
0: Yes, yeah, and not, not you haven't ended up in a bad place either, right?
1: Well, thank you. I'll leave that assessment to you. I'm still trying. <laughs> I feel very fortunate. I will say that. I know how lucky I am.
0: We've been talking with Connie Schultz. Her new novel is The Daughters of Erie Town. Thank you for spending some time with us today to talk about it.
1: It was so nice to talk to you. and Thank you for asking such smart, informed questions. I really appreciate it.
0: Emily Liebert packs her latest thriller, Perfectly Famous, with lots of twists and turns. If you read a lot of thrillers like me, then you might see a few coming. But I guarantee you the last sentence of the book will blow you away. I recently got to chat with Emily about the book, which is this week's summer read pick, and the cause she's supporting with a portion of her book's sales. What can you tell readers about Perfectly Famous without giving too much away?
2: Sure. I'm very happy to hear you say that you did not see the ending coming because that was my intention, clearly. I have always wanted to write a book where there was a big surprise ending, and I actually did not know that I was going to do it in this case. I did write a very thorough outline for the book, which I followed 99.9% of, and as I was writing the last sentence of the book, I changed the ending.
0: Get Out, really?
2: Yes. There are a few other big twists and turns in the book, and those were all planned and intentional and meant to be. And there was one unresolved thread that didn't feel like it was complete or finished to me. And it was always sort of lingering the back of my mind. And then it just sort of fell into place as I was writing the very ending.
0: That is very cool. I'm going to have to talk to you off air about that thread because I don't want to give anybody (laughs) any spoilers. So tell us a little bit more about the story. We've got uh, Ward DeFleur, who's a really famous author, and something happens to her.
2: Yes. So Ward DeFleur is a sort of larger-than-life crime fiction novelist. Think of the level of someone like Danielle Steele. of Jackie Collins and she's just written her thirteenth book, Lucky Number Thirteen, and she's at her first book event and she finds out this happens at the very beginning of the book, so it's not a spoiler. She finds out that her teenage daughter, Stevie, was abducted and killed. And she goes into a deep depression and goes into hiding and basically flees her um a very lovely town in Connecticut. No one can find her. She reneges on all of her book deals. Enter a second woman named Bree Bennett, who is a former journalist, recently divorced, looking to fill the void in her life of not having a husband to care for anymore and not, and also having a teenage daughter who no longer needs her and is a little bit rebellious. And she makes it her mission to find Ward, who's one of her favorite authors, tell her story. And in doing so, she gets entangled with Ward's daughter, Stevie's killer.
0: The idea of obsession or really being interested in someone or something is a major theme of this book. Have you ever had something or chased someone that maybe was kind of obsessive-like?
2: I've never chased someone in an obsessive way. Um, For one, I've never really had an opportunity to do that. I've never known anyone in my life to disappear. Um, However, I, I do have a propensity to get fixated on certain stories in the media or certain Individuals' lives or things that happen to them, and then I will follow those stories and really pursue them. But I don't do it in a way that um, will bring danger upon myself in the way that Brie did. Do
0: you think that's the tipping <laughs> point between being interested and being obsessed? Is is I do. a level of danger? I think
2: when you can no longer see what's in front of you, see the danger, and know that you're putting yourself in harm's way, you've stepped over the line of what is um, just sort of interest into infatuation or obsession.
0: We've got two different types of writers. We've got a novelist. We've got a journalist who longs to be a novelist. Any part of you in either one of these characters? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's very difficult to write main characters and not have there be some part of you in them. I definitely don't share Ward's personality. Ward is reluctantly famous. She loves to interact with her fans online and behind the safety of her computer screen, but she is very shy and anxious when it comes to being out in public, and that is not at all the way I am. If anything, I'm the complete opposite of that. However, of course, um, she is an author and I am an author, so I did pull some knowledge from that. And prior to being an author, I was a journalist for many years. I worked in TV for ABC News. I was a magazine editor. I was a freelance writer for magazines and newspapers. I still write a magazine column. The one thing I am not also is a mother of a daughter or a mother of a teenager. So that was definitely interesting for me to write about because I haven't experienced that yet. I have two sons who are nine and 10 years old.
0: Yeah, girls are different. (laughs) (laughs)
2: So I've heard, and it was amazing because Sarah Pekkanen, who's a very, very talented author, she writes on her own, and she also writes some great thrillers with Greer Hendricks. She had um, reached out to me after she read the book, and she said, I was so impressed by how you captured not only being this woman who's a divorcee, but this woman who's a divorcee and is dealing with a rebellious teenage daughter, because you are neither of those things, And she was really um, since she has gone through both, she was really impressed that I could capture that with having without having ever experienced it, which is always a huge compliment coming from another author, especially someone like Sarah.
0: I I was going to say, I know I spoke to an author recently who said, you know, sometimes you have to write about things that you don't know about, and that has to be the highest compliment to say you hit it, you hit the nail on the head, and you have no idea what either
2: one of these situations is It really is, especially when it's not like something you can research, you know. I don't know a ton about the Grand Canyon necessarily, but if I wanted to research it and write about it, I'm sure I could. I think it's a lot harder to research something like being divorced or having a child, that's a different age or a different sex than your own children.
0: So the name of your book is Perfectly Famous. How would you define the perfect way to be famous?
2: There is no way to be perfectly famous. (laughs) So, you know, my last book was called Pretty Revenge, And we kind of loved that title because it was two words that even though they sort of made sense together, also belied each other. Like there's no revenge that's really pretty. Um, So we wanted something like that again. And when I say we, I mean myself and my editor and my publisher. Wanted something like that again where there were two words that could fit together but yet didn't actually make sense together. I think fame is... Very, very challenging thing to achieve in any kind of perfect way. I'm sure, as we have all seen, there are many, many famous people who make regular mistakes in things that they say and do. And when you're in the spotlight like that, it's never going to be perfect.
0: Tell us why you're donating a portion of the proceeds from the book sales to the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization.
2: My book came out on Blackout Tuesday on the heels of... So many horribly atrocious, racist things that had occurred in our country and our world in the previous weeks and months. And I saw all these people starting to black out their pages and post memes. And what I, the first thing that came to my mind was, I can do that, but I need to do something more than that. I need to put my money and my actions where my mouth is, rather than just throwing a bunch of things up on social media. And I didn't want to rush to action and just pick a random charity because I thought that would be um, just doing it to do it. I took actually a week to think about where the best place to put that money would be. And Kerry Kennedy, who is the president of the Robert F. Kennedy human rights foundation organization um, has been a close friend of mine for many years. And I called her and I said, I'm looking to donate a portion of the proceeds of the book, but I need to make sure that you're doing specific work for black lives matter. And she said, 150% right now we are concentrating on building up black led businesses, black led communities on, bailing people out um, who are being incarcerated and shouldn't be. And I will make sure you have my personal word that I will make sure that any money that you donate will go to the right and proper places. And it was a no brainer for me. And so um, I will definitely be doing that. And so whenever anyone purchases a copy of the book, part of the money will be going to human rights specifically um, for Black-led communities and businesses and organizations.
0: Beyond the donation, is there anything you plan to do as a white writer to support equality and diversity?
2: Absolutely. I mean, um, just purchasing books by um, people of color, women of color, promoting those books. You know, it's, it's also educating yourself and doing the research, not relying on people of color, to explain to you, um, you know, what they've been through and what they continue to go through. So I will be doing that and I will be volunteering and taking any actions uh, that I can personally.
0: I know that there's this whole movement in publishing about your voice and there is criticism when someone who's white tries to incorporate or or write uh, black and brown characters. Is that something that you struggle with? Is that something you plan to stay away from and just support in other ways?
2: I don't think it's something that I intentionally stay away from. Um, If there is a circumstance where I think that there should be a black character in my book, um, I would not hesitate to write that character. Um, I would certainly have to do research and understand. um, But no, I think... To me, going out of your way not to do something is also a form of prejudice, I think. You have to do what feels right, right. you know?
0: And being able to sit here and and talk about it, too, is a big step for writers, for listeners, for readers. You know, it's, it's about educating yourself, like you said.
2: I also wouldn't gratuitously make someone in my book black just because I thought that I should, or because that's the thing to do now. I think that's also prejudice.
0: <laughs> right. And, and you know, and that's when writers fall into stereotypes and who wants to exactly. do that? We've been talking with Emily Liebert. Her new novel is Perfectly Famous. Thank you for spending some time today and talking with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we mark what should have been an Olympic summer with a novel that details the hurdles the first female Olympians faced in the 1930s. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.